Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Self-Initiative Project Podcast. I'm your host, Jim O'Brien. Hello, and welcome to episode 31. Today, we're going to be talking about safety while hiking and camping. You know, this is a topic I know it's kind of off the beaten path and a bit of a stretch for personal safety and security, but it's really not. And being outdoors, being out in the woods, being in the mountains, camping is something near and dear to my heart. I've done it off and on most of my entire life, going back to when I was a kid camping with my parents. We'd go to miscellaneous state parks and uh, tent camp, and then there was a period of time where uh, my dad and his brother bought a a Coleman pop-up camper, and we did that type of glamping for a while, which was really cool. Uh, to some some degree, but um, my my place is in a tent when I do go camping, and that's what I enjoy. And like I said, I've been camping since I was a kid. So this notion of talking about safety and even security when we're out in the woods or when we're camping or on hikes is uh, I thought would be a great topic for us to cover. And look, if if you're not out an outdoor person, I highly encourage you to try it get out there and roam about and and, and enjoy it. Um, for me, uh, being in the woods, being in the mountains especially, um, is very cathartic. And dare I say, well, I, I say it all the time, it's it's where I find my zen. It's where peace washes over me and I'm, I'm calmer and more at peace than any other time. So I recommend you get outdoors if you haven't. But um, as I said, I've been camping since I was a kid and I've been all over the state of Georgia, you know, obviously from being here, uh, the Southeast for that matter. Uh, I've camped in, gosh, uh, Georgia, obviously, North Carolina, Tennessee, um, Colorado, been out west, fortunate enough to go out west. But, you know, the nice thing about Georgia is, and it's not the humidity, but the nice thing about Georgia is, is that within several hours drive, you can literally be uh, from the North Georgia mountains to the coast of the Atlantic Ocean and everything in between. And so I've had the opportunity to camp, you know, near and around lakes in the mountains on the coast, actually camped uh, off of Cumberland Island and Sapelo Island once in my past life. So I've been all over. And you know, I don't, I don't really know um, what the what the reputation is today. I don't follow it much anymore. But um, I admit it. I came up through the Scouts, through the Boy Scouts of America, and at the time, and looking back on my experience, I would say it was fantastic for me. Um, and um, you know, I started in Cub Scouts, and then came up through Weebelows, and then wound up uh, a Boy Scout and. Went all the way through to life and got life, uh, which was, you know, a pretty decent achievement. In retrospect, I kind of wish I'd gotten Eagle Scout, but life was good. You know, about the time that I had um, my pathway to Eagle, I think I had like 11 more merit badges that I had to complete. And at that time, I had a lot of stuff going on in my life, going on in my life, uh, mostly uh, girls and uh, motorcycles. I was getting into motorcycles back then, but as you may have seen uh, on Instagram earlier, I still have my Boy Scout manual that was published in 1981. And I guess I had my Scoutmaster or something. It looked like the last time he'd signed off on something was 1984 something. Date myself a little bit. 
But I wanted to get back on topic. Um, I think it was a wonderful organization back then, at least. And some of the skills, if not all of the skills that I took on at that time, I still use a lot of them uh, to this day, especially when I'm out in the woods and camping or fire building even. But I thought today that we would talk about safety while we're doing these things. So there's a lot of topics I want to get through and they're in no particular order. But just starting out in an obvious place is talking about um, first aid and trauma and how important it is to have those kits with you when you're camping and hiking, even on a day day hike. Um, you, you can't be too well prepared. And so um, talking about first aid, you know, um, I'm not going to go through the contents of what you should have in your first aid. Most off the shelf standard first aid have most, if not everything you would need for first aid. I recommend that you replace some of the cheaper bandages uh, with some good quality Band-Aid brand bandages, something like that. You might want to go through and personalize it some yourself. But just talking about a few additional things that you should consider or I would recommend carrying in your first aid kit is one is a good antihistamine, something like a Benadryl. Obviously, if you react poorly to Benadryl, you might want to find something else. I carry rubbing alcohol, has all kinds of purposes. Um, Moleskin's a good idea, in addition to having good sticky Band-Aids that don't come off after five minutes of application. Moleskin can come in handy, you know, some some of those new ill-fitting hiking boots or whatever, you know, moleskin. If I can talk, moleskin can help, um, you know, if you put that between your shoe and your hot spot, you can prevent or better prevent blisters from coming on. Uh, keeping some anti-diarrheal medicine in there is always a good idea. And then, you know, aspirin or your, or pain relief of your choice. And so those are just a few things that if they're not already in your first aid kit, if you start taking, you know, hiking, camping trips, probably good idea to recommend. And then, you know, every year or so you want to check the expiration of some of those things to make sure they're still good because they do go bad as we know. But additionally, and something near and dear to my heart, and we've talked about this over the course of a few podcasts that we've done, is the importance of having a basic trauma kit and learning how to stop severe bleeding. And I've said it a million times, I'll say it more um, severe bleeding, hemorrhaging, is the number one cause of preventable death in trauma cases. So you have an obligation to yourself, especially if you're camping and hiking with your loved ones, to have a trauma kit. The basics, you don't have to be a doctor. It's all relatively easy to deal with severe bleeding. But you need that trauma kit. And of course, you know, in that trauma kit, you're going to want to have a tourniquet. So... Just starting out right out of the gate, talking about first aid and trauma, some tips there for you to keep in mind. And like I said, you should be carrying those items with you, whether you're going on a month-long camping trip or a day hike. It really can come in handy. And the chances of, of you needing it, who knows, probably pretty slim, right? But the key is to be prepared and know what to do and how to do it when and if an emergency rises. So next, I want to talk about tents and shelter in general. Like I said, I prefer camping in a tent. I'm not a big glamper. These six-figure RVs isn't my idea of camping at all, but that's just me. 
So, um, you know, when I was in the Boy Scouts, one of the things that I learned was you want to avoid those widow makers. And for those of you who came up through the Boy Scouts or, you know, camp a lot, you may have heard this before. But what a widow maker is in this context is when you're pitching a tent, you want to make sure to be conscientious of the trees that are around where you want to pitch your tent, your tent site. And you, you obviously don't want to pitch near a dead tree or a dying tree, but just as important, you want to take a minute to scan up overhead because what you're looking for are large dead branches, you know, in the spring and summer. It's easy. They don't have any leaves on them, right? Something doesn't look right. And you want to avoid pitching underneath those because there have been cases supposedly where those branches break off while someone's asleep in the tent and it kills them and makes their wife a widow. So there's that. There's basically a short story for you. So you want to be cautious of where you pitch your tent relative to overhanging branches. And obviously you want to try to uh, find level ground, <laughs> Le level smooth ground. You know, you don't want to pitch your tent where the root roots and rocks are. And, um, Plus, you know, you want to sleep comfy and flat. So ideally, you're looking for a flat place. And then, you know, when you're looking for a place for your tent, you know, we don't have a lot of it here in Georgia, but you want to look to avoid floodplains. And, you know, if there's been a lot of water traveling through an area, you can do, generally tell where that water's cut through, right? The soil has been eroded or there's been a little path, stream path. And then any place that's known for having flash floods, you definitely don't want to pitch your tent in there. So avoid those overhanging branches, look for flat, and avoid the floodplains. Uh, if you do have to pitch at an angle, you want to make sure your door is downhill. And then what you want to do, because you want to try to sleep as flat as you possibly can, if you don't have a choice, then what you want to do is through using various gear, you know, clothing out of your pack, whatever, um, rolling up extra blankets, whatever, you want to try to create a flat surface for yourself inside that tent. And that way you don't have to worry about all your blood rushing to your head in the middle of the night while you're asleep, which is no bueno. Another topic near and dear to my heart, uh, I've spent a lot of time with blades and axes and hatchets and saws and all of that stuff. And, you know, again, I, I think the first knife I ever had was my parents bought me a, a Boy Scout knife and it was a canoe type, had a couple of different size blades. It had an awl or awl or punch on it. I think it had a... Um, can't well i know it had a can opener and then it had um i think a phillips head screwdriver which was maybe part of the can opener i don't remember exactly but i think that was my very first knife i ever had and i um more recently i was curious because i was thinking well maybe i'll have one for nostalgic purposes and sure enough you can get them at the scout store still to this day for about twenty dollars of course they're made in china as you might imagine but it's still cool that they make them today but you know, this is an area where you really, there's a lot of safety that you need to be conscientious of and be super cautious of how you're handling your blades, whether it's a axe, a hatchet, a saw, or a knife. Um, you know, probably the biggest tip that I can, or I guess the two biggest tips uh, that I can give you is whether it's a hatchet, an axe, or a knife, fixed blade, folder, doesn't matter. 
The safest blade that you can carry is a sharp blade. Ironically speaking, a dull blade is a lot more dangerous than a sharp blade because a good sharp blade is going to bite and it's going to cut properly. A dull blade has a, can have a tendency to slip and you can still cut yourself and gouge yourself deeply and severely with a dull blade, but keeping your tools, and you should be keeping your tools up anyway, but keeping, uh, keeping up with your blades means keeping them sharp. And the other thing that I want to say is the best thing you can do for safety is whether you're walking with an axe, using a knife, uh, you want to keep that blade away from you. And when you're whittling or cutting rope, you want to always or try to as best as you can. When you have the opportunity, try to cut away from yourself and not towards yourself uh, just to reduce the likelihood of um, having a bad situation go uh, <laughs> happen to you. Uh, so try to cut away from yourself. And I know, look, a lot of the stuff we're talking about is going to be basic, right? But still... It's good info to have if you don't know or if you haven't thought about this stuff before. So that's why we're talking about it. Um, the other thing, you know, relative to knives, and you don't really give it a thought because you'd be like, duh, why would I do that? But, you know, sometimes when you're whittling or carving on something, what you do as a kid, at least I did, is you want to be sure that you're not, you know, holding the stick on your leg and carving down towards your thigh, Right. That's an accident waiting to happen. And I know that sounds common sense and obvious, but, you know, you might hold a stick there because it's close and convenient, <clears throat> but you really do not want to carve down towards your thigh uh, because it, nothing, it doesn't take a whole lot for a blade to slip. And next thing you know, you've gashed, say, the top or the inside of your thigh, which is not good. So you want to keep your tools sharp at all times and you want to cut away from you. One of the other tools that's a favorite when camping is you're going to need that firewood. And I know a lot of state parks and stuff don't let you chop up wood because a lot of idiots were falling live trees, green trees, instead of picking up stuff off the ground. But, you know, I'm just going to say you may still have a hatchet or axe. And so there's a few points about hatchets and axe that I want to touch upon. And again, keeping them sharp still applies. Uh, one of the things when you're chopping, especially with a axe is one of the things that I learned actually, again, in the boy Scouts is that you hold the axe by the, by its head and you out, out extend your arm straight where the axe is just kind of an extension of your arm and you hold it straight out. And a better way to think of it is that you're going to extend the axe straight out in front of you and then turn around in a circle. That's really the easiest way to do it. Turn around a complete circle. And then you're going to raise that axe over your head, keeping your arm extended fully and kind of create an arch. And the idea is, is that you need at least that much room to swing an axe or even a hatchet for that matter safely without snagging surrounding branches or vines that might be hanging down. So it's about making sure you've got enough clear space to operate. Uh, one of the things that I also learned was when you're walking with an axe or hatchet is you walk with your hand choked up under the head, underneath the blade on the handle. And you face the blade away from your body. So I'm right-handed, so I would choke up on the axe all the way underneath or the hatchet all the way underneath the head, the blade, 
and I would aim the blade out to the right of my body. The idea is, is that, you know, our arms naturally swing a little bit when we walk, so we don't want the blade potentially even scraping the side of our thigh, our leg, right? But the other idea, too, is if I trip on and fall, which I could, walking in the woods, trip on a root while I'm looking for firewood, that blade facing away from me is going to just be that much better because when I start to trip and fall, I want to get in the habit of throwing that axe or hatchet away from me. And so I don't have a chance of falling on said axe or hatchet, which would not be good either. So just to summarize again, uh, you want to try to cut away from you um, and, and you want to keep your tools sharp. The sharper you can keep them, the better. So let's talk about clothing. This is a big one and we don't have to spend a lot of time because it's pretty straightforward but you know you need to know you know when you're when you're planning your trips you need to know where you're going and what the temperature and weather is going to be right and pack accordingly in the cooler months you're not you're not going to have to worry about layering and thick heavy jackets and stuff like that but in the winter time those are things you've got to take into consideration you need to take into consideration rain gear you know keeping yourself dry avoiding hypothermia especially if it's cool out so clothing's really important and you know there's nothing more important than a good pair of hiking shoes or hiking boots and proper socks and you know you might get them new and they might need to be broken in but it's really imperative that you try them on ahead of time and make sure they fit properly and they're as comfortable as possible um, you know, there's a saying, and I, I, I must admit I didn't learn it until more recently, but there's a saying that says cotton kills, and it's evidently pretty big in the camping community, hiking community, whatever, backpacking. And I get it because uh, cotton, as compared to wool and polyester, retains moisture uh, significantly longer than polyester and wool does. Matter of fact, that's why wools like merino wool are fantastic for uh, even in even in warmer weather because it wicks moisture away, it dries quickly, it has the ability to keep you comfortable and warm. Uh, and the same with polyester. Now, when I've done backpacking trips, like I've gone um, backpacking up on the northern end of the Chattooga River. If, if you're familiar with Clayton, Georgia, um, you can get up there well north of where all the kayaking and canoeing and rafting goes on at, at the north end of the river where it's literally, you know, 15, 20 feet wide, maybe. And uh, there's some good camping back in there. But um, at any rate, uh, one of the things that I usually do is I'm typically not backpacking in the wintertime. It's not really my bag, but... Um, my gear consists of polyester shirts and polyester shorts because if it comes a quick rainstorm and I get caught without my rain gear on, I'll dry out quickly. And if I'm sweating here in the Georgia humidity, if nothing else, uh, it helps. Uh, it will dry out much faster. Now, I will tell you, at least for me personally, um, maybe this is too much information, but the drawback to polyester, at least for me, is, oh, my God, it makes me stink. So, you know, these things have got pros and cons to them, right? If you, if you can afford it, I recommend going the way of wool, especially like with shirts and uh, long, john, you know, long johns, long underwear, 
thermal underwear and socks, uh, most importantly. Um, but then uh, polyester for pretty much anything else or if you can't step up to the merino wool because some of that stuff gets fairly expensive. But the point of this is to avoid cotton where possible. And look, if you're going for a weekend car camping trip, this doesn't mean you can't wear your funny cotton camping t-shirts or anything like that. Just when it comes to getting the proper gear and preparing for day hikes or overnight trips, you know, backpacking excursions, whatever, having the proper clothing is, is a, a godsend when you need them. So, you know, knowing what the weather and the temperatures are going to be, where you're going and, you know, preparing for things like huge temp swings between day and night, you know, some places like the desert can be hundred plus degrees during the day and we know it can be freezing or below at night so you got to take all of those things into consideration but um, staying with polyester or wool having proper fitting comfortable hiking shoes or boots and then the the last thing uh, that I want to say and this is just more of a, a hygiene tip is if you're going to be showering in the campsites and in public showers be sure to pack your pair of shower flip-flops. I actually still have a pair of flip-flops that I got in, I think, 1982 when I was camping up in North Carolina for showering. And uh, I still use them for that reason. And that's the only time I get those things out is so I have a pair of shower flip-flops. But I highly recommend that. You won't regret it because you'll keep the funk or have a better chance of keeping the funk off your feet if you do. So I want to talk about animals. This is something near and dear to my heart. I love all animals. Uh, I'm not a hunter. I have hunted. I've killed a lot of small game and stuff as a young boy growing up. Decided to give that up some time ago. But animals is an important topic um, because um, they're beautiful. Uh, they all have spirits and souls. And you know, one of the worst things that we can do, and I know it's going to break a lot of people's heart and run contrary to what they might think, but the, one of the worst things that we can do when we're in nature and in their home, because we have to remember we're in their place, we're in their home now, is the worst thing that we can do is try to interact with those animals, try to get too close, especially feeding them. You know, it's one thing to go to a state park and buy some corn dried corn at the park ranger station and go out and feed the ducks in the lake that's not what we're talking about approaching deer approaching elk um, white-tailed deer is big here in the southeast uh, georgia um, elk is big even up on the edge of the smoky mountains in tennessee you'll see herds of elk running out there I've been camping outside two, two and a half hours outside of Denver, Colorado, and had elk bugling over the overlook uh, that I, we were camping down in the basin of, heard that. But the worst thing that we can do is try to approach these animals. There's a lot of people that do. Uh, you see it all the time if you spend any time in state or national parks. If there's a critter around, it seems there's some idiot that always is trying to get close and you know, we're always trying to be social media superstars this day and get that video or get that picture or feed them <laughs> the worst of the worst case. And why is this bad? Well, they're wild animals. And by wild animals, we mean they're 
potentially unpredictable or they are unpredictable because they're wild. You got it. So we want to keep our distance away from them and we certainly don't want to feed them. And, you know, in addition to being unpredictable, if something happens to a human because of an animal, the animal is who is what loses. And what I mean by that is when an animal attacks, when a wild animal attacks a human, um, the animal loses. Uh, best case scenario, you know, they might be tranquilized, caged up, and hauled off 50 miles away and released again. Uh, if, the, if the attack was serious enough or whatever the circumstances are, and I'm not sure what makes the difference, but usually, in a lot of cases, that animal's going to be put down. It's going to be euthanized through no fault of its own. The animal's just being an animal. The animal's only doing what it knows to do. And so, you know, I was telling a buddy of mine the other night, it would be the same thing. You know, when we go outdoors into the wild, we're in their home. We're, we're where they live, where they raise their young, and where they eat and sleep. And so, it would be, you know, if you could come up with something similar, it would be the same as us all leaving the front and back door of our house open and having perfectly good strangers walk through unannounced and hanging out and trying to make us a sandwich. You know, that's not going to go over so well. At least it's not for me, I know. Uh, but I know that's a silly comparison, but the point of it is, is that we have to remember that we're in their house when we're out in the wild and outdoors. And so it's important. And the reason why it's important to keep our distance and not to feed them is that um, over time in doing so, sometimes quicker than others, uh, depending on the animal, they get, used to they get used to humans. And we don't want them used to humans because wild animals that are used to humans, now they're approaching us and coming after us for food, expecting food. You know, they can be little beggars too. I'll tell a story about um, some black bear that I ran into at Kate's Cove up in Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. So, and I'm going to try to find the picture and post it on Instagram. No promises that I can find it, but I swear this happened and I have witnesses to it. So my buddy, this is probably back in the early mid nineties. My buddy and I are up at one of the churches or the church at Kate's Cove. I forget how many churches are up there. And, uh, Anyway, it was a white one, and we uh, were in the church looking around, and we hear all this commotion out in the parking lot just outside the front doors of the church, and we hear the screaming, and we turned around and looked out the door, and these people are jumping up on their cars and running away out from where the edge of the woods are there in front of the church. So my buddy and I, you know, probably not being the smartest, we head into the, we head into where the people are running out of, and no, we didn't get close, and no, we did not approach her, but can't make this up. Uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Down in the woods a bit, probably, I don't know, 30, 40 feet maybe, there was a bear that was sitting on a picnic blanket holding a box of KFC, not to name drop, but holding a box of KFC chicken, eating chicken out of a KFC box. I kid you not, and I've got a picture of it, and I need to dig it out. Anyway, so I got that picture and we watched that for a moment and couldn't believe our eyes. And then we continued on our uh, visitation for the day and we went hiking down the trail from the church and 
got along the path and happened to look up and two baby black bear cubs are up on a pine tree. One's on one side of the pine tree and one's on the other. I also have that picture and I'd say probably 15, 20 feet away because by the time we we saw them, because we heard them scampering up the tree, I guess maybe we spooked them coming down the trail. Um, these two baby black bear cubs, they were so cute hanging off either side of that tree. And I got a picture of that. And then we realized that the bear on the picnic blanket, which was still on the other side of the parking lot where we came from, was more than likely these two cubs' mom. And we were like, we've got to get out of here. So, yeah, true stories. Um, and so the point of that is we didn't try to approach them. Uh, we didn't certainly didn't feed them. But somehow or another, that I'm going to assume that mama black bear had no problem walking up to those people that were clearly having a picnic down in the woods, which you would think you'd be able to do. But up there, you know, animals and humans run into each other all the time. As a matter of fact, there was a, if I remember the story right, one of those big pastures is you're coming out of Cherokee heading into the park up there, the Smoky Mountain Park. Uh, There's a couple of huge pastures. And if you time it out right, it's not uncommon to see herds of elk in those pastures. And I guess the story is that I heard is that a woman was getting too close and approaching them, taking their pictures, because getting that picture is so important. And I think the rangers wound up fining her for, you know, getting too close because there's rules posted, right? We're the humans. We're supposed to be the smart ones. And when you break the rules, you suffer the consequences. And so, you know, she's lucky that an elk had no intentions of messing with her, but she got fined heavily. A similar story I heard recently, too. I think some woman, you know, dumb on a couple of counts, but some woman, somebody was feeding black bear up there in the park, Smoky Mountain Park, and took pictures of themselves or whoever they were with, took pictures of them feeding said black bears. And then like idiots, they posted it on Facebook. Well, somebody reported them through Facebook. They tracked them down and find them um, because it's illegal to feed the animals. So, so don't, don't, uh, don't feed them. And there's a couple of times, a couple of place points where you don't ever want to mess with an animal, and that's usually when they have their babies with them, right? If an animal's got their babies with them, that's the last time that you really want to uh, try to mess with them. Um, uh, bears uh, have their young, uh, black bears at least, have their young in January, and then mama usually has their babies for 12 to 18 months. So, you know, when you see her with her cubs, she's had them potentially for a little while. Uh, and the last thing you want to do is you, you've heard it probably. You may not have seen them, but you've heard it. Last thing you want to do is tangle with a mama bear, right? And the other thing that you have to be uh, really super careful with and reason why you want to keep your distance is, again, I mentioned white-tailed deer are big here in the southeast and in Georgia. And, and we just talked about elk, too. And so uh, the thing that you have to be conscientious with with those guys is their rut season. You know, it's their mating season. And so for elk, that's typically mid-September to mid-October-ish, from what I understand. And 
for the white-tailed deer, it's like um, either the beginning or middle of October, all the way up through early December. And when a big buck, you know, that big 10-point buck is in rut, the last thing you want to do is try to get a selfie with him. Um, It's just not a good time. Um, So just a couple of things there. And, you know, knowing the animals that are indigenous to the area that you're visiting, you know, that's good information to keep in mind so you know what to be more leery of and what to keep in mind as you go on these trips. You know, something else that you might see, I know I've seen it a couple of times, uh, had a run-in with uh, one once, is uh, venomous snakes. Not all snakes are venomous. I love snakes. I think they're great. I would never kill them. No reason to. They do more good than harm. Yeah, I guess if you got small children and pets around your backyard, and you might consider offing a venomous snake, certainly. But snakes in general are great, and that's just my opinion. I'll leave that right there. But um, you want to be ca- cautious of, of snakes when you're in the woods. And uh, there's only four types, four overall, if you will, arching umbrella types of venomous snakes here in the U.S. But uh, we have a few here in Georgia. Uh, we have cottonmouths or water moccasins. And that's a semi-aggressive snake. They live um, near water. So you have to be really careful when you're near streams, small streams and rivers or lakes, because they definitely like to stay in there. And And they are not the most aggressive snake, but they are, uh, let's just say, can be curious. And so they can come after you. Uh, we also have uh, some rattlesnakes, I think, down in South Georgia in the warmer Uh, climates if i'm not mistaken and then another big uh, venomous snake that we have here are the copperheads and so you know you want to keep an eye out and you know one of another lesson that i learned when i was in the scouts was when hiking along a trail and you should stay on the trail and we'll talk more about why here in a minute but um, when you're hiking along a trail and you come upon a log you don't just step over the log and not pay attention to what you're doing keep on you step up onto the log you look down onto the other side and if you can kind of look underneath that log as best you can before you then step down and continue because the idea is is there could be something coiled up you know hanging out underneath or on the back side of that log that unless you take a moment to look before you step over that log step up look and then step over um you know you might be in a and for a surprise. So that's just a little tip there. And, you know, sometimes you're not going to get close enough and I get it. A lot of people don't like snakes, but you know, there are some telltale signs of venomous snakes. Uh, the biggest one is that typically non venomous snakes have rounded heads and venomous snakes. Uh, typically uh, the big difference between non venomous and venomous is that venomous have triangular heads now there are some um, non-venomous round-headed snakes if you will that can try to flatten their heads it's one of their defense mechanisms just like the speckled king snake can vibrate the very tip of his tail very rapidly where it looks it doesn't look like a rattler but you could see it vibrating super fast and it sounds similar to like what a rattlesnake would do 
you know, rattlesnakes have rattles on the end of their tail and you hear them sh- uh, shaking. You've probably seen or, or heard a rattlesnake in a movie a time or two or on TV. But by that same token, not all rattlesnakes have a rattler. So, you know, snakes, like a lot of animals, have defense mechanisms that they use. But the general rule of thumb is non-venomous snakes have a round head and a venomous snake has a triangular shaped head. And then the other thing, which is kind of hard to do because you got to kind of get you, you would be probably in danger zone. But a non-venomous snake has round eyes and a venomous snake has a slit like a cat. Um, but again, you got to be careful because you're getting pretty close if you're able to tell that. But the head's the big sign. And then, you know, there's some other behavioral traits and color markings, things like that. But that's just kind of the, the basics. Um, and not that I want to make a big s- section and get into details of first aid. But if you are bitten by a snake, do not buy those snake bite kits that have the suction cups and the razor blades do not wash the wound do not cut the wound do not apply any suction don't suck on your buddy's leg if he gets bitten in the calf don't use those suction cups and don't apply a tourniquet what you want to do is lay the person down ideally with the place where they got bitten below their heart level and you want to keep them calm and cool and relaxed uh, you might want to wrap the wound lightly with some clean gauze but don't use water don't use suction don't cut it and don't ply a tourniquet keep them calm and call for help and that's really all the advice I want to give there and the reason why I give that is because they still sell these stupid snake bite kits even on Amazon with the little suction cups and the razors that's not proper first aid care for a snake so that's why I want to say that So why do we want to stay on the trail? And, you know, this is, you know, I could have made a general topic about, you know, the merits of staying on the trail, but relative to animals, well, if you don't stay on the trail, you might be more likely to run into a wild animal, right? Potentially, because the idea is if you're on an official trail, there's probably people coming through there, at least with some frequency, some regularity. If you get off the trail, God knows where you are. Can you find your way back to the trail? So there's all those reasons, too. And uh, I can tell you firsthand a couple of uh, times where I got off the trail as a kid and learned the hard way why you don't want to do that. And both times involved bees specifically our little friend the yellow jackets so the first time that i was i think it was the first time i was attacked the worst was um i was actually camping while i was in the boy scouts and i think i was at um i think i was at woodward scout reservation if i remember that right i think that's where it was if it wasn't that it was bird adams but i think it was woodward and um my buddy and I were hiking back maybe from the gun range or something. And for whatever reason, I went off the trail. There was this little pity path. It wasn't that long between our camp and wherever we were coming from. And I guess we were gathering firewood for the night to have for later that night. And I got off the trail and I picked up this log off the ground, not thinking twice about it. Right. I'm going to gather firewood. And I guess there was either in the ground or in that log, a hive of yellow jackets. And let me tell you, 
I had a cloud of yellow jackets around me. And matter of fact, my buddy, and I can't think of what his name was. I was trying to think the other day. It was either Danny or Dennis, I think. But anyway, he was behind me, and I took off running down the trail because I'm getting lit up. And, you know, by now these things are inside my shirt and everything else. He was like, dude, he was like, you had so many yellow jackets on you. He's like, I couldn't even see your skin anymore. He's like, you're literally, the back of you was literally coated in yellow jackets. Well, my scoutmaster, I think, wound up dabbing like antiseptic, you know, antihistamine swab stuff, whatever, on my back. I think he hit like 50 stings I'd gotten. And of course, a yellow jacket, unlike a honeybee, they can keep stinging, you know, wasp and hornets and such can keep stinging. A honeybee, honeybee can only sting once because when it stings you, its stinger gets torn out of its body, which kills it. And that's why you'll see the stinger stuck in your skin, you know, in the bottom of your foot. And the little sack on the end is pulsing because it's pumping the, the venom into you. But wasp, anyway, to make a long story short, <laughs> yellow jackets do not lose their stingers, at least most of the time. So they're capable of re-stinging. So I have no idea how many different yellow jackets stung me. All I know is a lot of yellow jackets. All I know is I got, I had a lot of yellow jackets on me and I got stung a lot of times. And I think it was like 45 or 50. So luckily I'm one of these people that don't go into anaphylactic shock, which is a whole nother thing that you need to be aware of. And hopefully before you take any serious trips into the woods and whatnot, you have some health history and understand how you react to things like beast stings but if not that's just something to be aware of so uh the other time um i was at uh, a state park in north georgia with uh, my family and my dad and i once again uh the firewood gathering stories man um we were up on the back side of this mountain and we were gathering up piles of wood to bundle up with rope and drag back down to camp and I went up on this ledge, up on this uh, face of this mountain, you know, in Georgia, they, we say they're mountains, but they're really like big hills. But anyway, up, up on the side, on the face of this big hill, and again, I picked up the wrong, long, the wrong branch or the wrong log, whatever it was. And my dad said that I came down off of that mountain like I could have beat you know, anybody in racing, uh, running. Uh, and again, I, I was completely covered in yellow jackets. So, uh, bees are not our friends. And for that, and for bees reasons alone, um, <laughs> you know, you want to probably stay on the trail. And if you do get off the trail, you want to make sure you have some sense of direction and you're not too far off course and you know how to get back up on, um, uh, the trail. So, yeah, I've, I've, you know, haven't had a tremendous number of run-ins with wildlife. Luckily, I've had nothing severe happen. I haven't come close to bear attack or anything, but, um, yeah. And so, let's talk about bears because here in the southeast, we actually have our infamous black bear. You know, out west and up in Canada, it's more the grizzly and brown. And actually, the grizzly and brown bear are the same bear. It's just their diet that makes them different. But here in the southeast and in Georgia, we have black bear. And, you know, being up in the Smoky Mountains as many times as I have over the years, I've actually seen quite a few black bears. You know, they might even be hanging out on the side of the road. 
and they're not not to be trifled with true they're not the same as a grizzly but a black bear can be extremely aggressive and in fact a black bear is a more ferocious fighter or can be a more ferocious fighter than even a grizzly because a black bear will fight you until they think you're completely subdued Uh, and so they're not to be messed with and again certainly if they have cubs do not try to approach them Uh, stay away from them and whatever you do uh, don't think it's cool to uh, throw your food out there and feed them because it's not Um, but just talking about bears for a minute so you know, there's some things you need to follow when you come up on a bear. And we'll talk a little bit about grizzlies and black bears because you have to treat them and handle them differently because of the way they go about their attacks when they are in attack mode. Um, with a black bear, if you're in black bear country, which, you know, you can be just about anywhere in North Georgia, for an example, uh, you want to be sure to stay on that path. Again, a good reason to stay on the trail. Um, you want to be making some amount of noise. Like if you're by yourself, go ahead and hum or sing out loud. Um, stay, stay, don't try to be sneaky and ninja like through the woods, like stay noisy. And then if you do happen to see a, a black bear off in the distance or worse yet close, don't run. Whatever you do, don't run. Uh, stay facing the bear. Keep an eye on them. And you want to, if you have the opportunity, you want to back up slowly, but don't turn your back on the bear because you need to be able to see what they're doing. But whatever you do, don't run. Uh, The other thing that you want to do is you want to, they say you want to try to make yourself as big as possible. So you're going to lift your arms over your head and you're going to shout and yell and, and hey, bear, and all this to make yourself seem like you're a formidable foe that they don't want to mess with. Uh, but if if you did if they did get the drop on you if you found yourself you weren't paying attention then oh my gosh you wind up 20 feet away from a bear um, you know ideally you might have some bear spray uh, they say bear spray is effective in about 90 percent of the cases at least that's a stat that I saw right before I started doing this um, but you uh, want to have bear spray and be prepared to use that Uh, This whole time you're making noise, you should be getting your bear spray out, taking the safety cap off. So again, like mace you might carry in your purse, uh, you want to be practiced with the bear spray. So you want to know how to get that safety tab, safety cap off, whatever, and you want to know how to shoot that stuff. So you might want to get two and practice, right? We've talked about that before with regular mace. Uh, And then if a black bear does attack you, you need to be prepared to fight it. You need to be prepared to pick up a rock, a stick, take your knife out, whatever, and focus on his nose and eyes or any other thing you figure might be sensitive. Because, again, a black bear is going to mess with you until he figures that you're done for or that you're in the point where you can't fight back anymore. A black bear is not always black. Um, they can be brown or cinnamon. And so, you know, sometimes, oh, that's a grizzly or a brown bear. No, it's still a. A black bear so they're called black bears but they're not always black so you got to remember that too and of course you're going to kind of know what kind of bear it is based on the part of the country that you're in right and so here again we're going to be dealing with the black bear if you happen to be out west or up in canada alberta british columbia you know wherever up there uh or uh 
out west in the Rockies, um, you might have a chance of running into a grizzly or a brown bear. And again, they're the same thing. And they're a little bit bigger than a brown a black bear is. Um, and they have a couple of differences um, that a black bear does not have. The first thing with a grizzly or brown bear is they typically have shorter ears than a black bear does, and they're rounded. So smaller ears and rounded. And then, of course, they are generally brown or close, right? There's really no such thing as a black grizzly or black brown bear, right? Uh, hence the name brown bear. Uh, but their other telltale sign, besides of their enormity, uh, is they have a hump at their shoulder level uh, on their back. They have a big hump. Uh, a black bear does not have a hump like that. So size, ears, and that hump. Larger size, smaller ears, and the hump are uh, telltale signs of the grizzly brown bear. And they're a little bit different. You still want to be making noises. You still want to stay on the trail. Ideally, you want to be in a group of people. Uh, but you still want to be singing out loud, talking, breaking sticks, whatever. Uh, you might even wear jingle bells. You might wear jingle bells on your backpack in either case, whether you're in black bear country or grizzly country. Um, the difference, though, is that if they're at distance, you still never want to run. And with either type of bear, you never want to try to climb a tree because, uh, hello, bears climb trees too. So that does you no good. You don't want to run away. but And you want to try to back away and get out of the area slowly. But if you're ever confronted with a grizzly slash brown bear, then you never want to make eye contact. You want to make yourself as small as possible. So I would imagine like humping my curling my shoulders over and kind of taking up, trying to take up less footprint, less space and not be obnoxious because they take the obnoxiousness that you would do to scare off a black bear. They take that obnoxiousness as a threat. So with the grizzly or brown, you don't make eye contact. You make yourself as small as possible and then if they do attack, you do not fight a grizzly bear back. You lay down and try to protect your head and stomach as best you can until they have gone off. And then you still want to kind of stay put for a good 20 plus minutes, uh, 20, 30 minutes after the bears left the area because you don't know how far they've left the area, right? But you're not going to fight a grizzly or brown bear. You're going to lay down. You're going to cover your head. And you're going to cover your stomach. And that's really a big difference. So with the black bear, you're going to make yourself big and rowdy and obnoxious, and you're going to fight back if they attack you. A grizzly or brown bear, you're going to be kind of the timid, quiet, whatever type of person, and then you're going to lay down and protect your head and stomach. And that's really the two differences between those two. So I wanted to talk about bees because of my experience. Snakes, obviously, is one. Uh, bears, because I've seen plenty of black bears out in the, out in the woods, um, and as well as elk and deer. Um, so all of these things are possible when you're out and about in nature. And again, the most important lesson is don't approach the animals, whether they're in rut, whether they've got babies or not, it doesn't matter. Keep your distance, obey the rules, and whatever you do, don't feed them because, again, it makes them used to humans. And once they become used to humans, now they are becoming dangerous to us. 
and it never ends well for that animal. They're generally going to get put down, and so I'm going to leave that there. We could talk a lot about plants and poisonous plants, things you don't want to eat, things you don't want to put in your mouth. Um, but I want to take a minute and talk specifically about poison ivy, just because I've had so much personal experience with uh, poison ivy, I can't even begin to tell you. So it's better now as an adult when I get it. Yeah, I might get some, you know, it's going to be scratchy. And yeah, I might get a few places on my body. Um, but it's not like it was for me when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I had no self-control. You know, you're going to scratch that stuff. And when you scratch it, it spreads. So talking about poison ivy for a minute. So what is poison ivy? What does it look like? Well, it's a plant. <laughs> that has um, oils in the leaves, in the roots, in the vines. And if you get that oil in, onto your skin, it causes this blisterous rash that's incredibly itchy. And the problem is, as you itch it, it spreads. It spreads in the, like, let's say you get a blister or two, a rash in an area, and you start scratching it. You'll actually make streaks of where you scratched it with more blisters. But not only that, a lot of people don't understand that the oil um, travels through your bloodstream. So you might get poison ivy on your knuckle or the back of your hand, let's say I'm making up stuff. And next thing you know, you've got rash and the blisters on your ankle. And it's not because you scratched your hand and then touched your ankle, even though that can happen, but it's also traveled through the bloodstream. So it's very important when you come in contact with it that you wash the area that you've come in contact with immediately uh, and that you wash those clothes and get rid of those clothes if you think you've come into it. Uh, because the oil does, you know, the oil can get on your pets, the oil can get on your clothes, and then if you get it on your skin, it's over with. So what does poison ivy look like? So I would encourage you to go onto the interwebs and and search it and look at the pictures, but just to kind of give you a description of it. It is a uh, it is a vine and its leaves grow in clusters of 3. So for every leaf, you can bet it's got two little brothers and sisters with it, right? And then my most of the stuff that I see that I've been into at least is each leaf, they may not be super well pronounced. They're not always going to be well, they're not going to stand out, but each leaf generally has five points on it. Not like sharp pointy, um, but you'll see when you see the pictures of it, you go, oh yeah, leaves clusters of three, and then they'll have five points. And sometimes those points are a little pointier than others, and sometimes they're rounded to the point of almost just looking like a smooth leaf. Um, the leaves are green in the summer. In the spring, when they're first coming out, they can be orangish and red. And then in the fall, they can be this red and yellow speckled whatever. But here's the, here's the bear about poison ivy, uh, speaking of bears, uh, is that in the wintertime, it, it may not have any leaves on it. Um, and so your rule is if you see vines growing up a tree or across the ground and you don't know for sure what it is, don't just grab that vine assuming it's honeysuckle or, you know, uh, kutsu or something like that. It could likely be poison ivy. And look, there's some vines. There's a lot of vines out there, and a couple of them may even kind of look suspiciously like poison ivy. They're not, 
But my point is, is in the wintertime, if you get into the vines or the roots of the poison ivy, you can still get that oil on you and you're in trouble. Uh, the other thing, and in, in, on that topic, another reason why you want to avoid anything with vines on it is because let's say you find some branches or logs that look like perfectly good firewood, but they've got vines on them. Do you know for sure what that vine is? Because here's the thing. The last thing that you want to do is burn poison ivy in your campfire. Uh, poison ivy is poisonous and the smoke can get into your eyes and the smoke can get into your lungs. Now, figure that one out. So you want to be super cautious, whether it's green and obvious what it is or anything with vines. And it's just better to avoid the vines, especially if it's wintertime. Just assume it's poison ivy or something bad. And there's plenty of other woods, uh, plenty of other wood in the in the forest to gather for fire. Oh, and if you do get poison ivy, the key is not to scratch it and to get it dried out. So even just dabbing isopropyl alcohol in it, eh, is it great for your skin? No, but I'm trying to dry up these blisters full of, you know, water and poison ivy oil. So I think I'll, comp, you know, I'll deal with the dry skin because I'm trying to dry out this rash. But there's some good products on the market too um, that I recommend. Calamine lotion can help with the itching, but it is not going to do a whole lot for drying up the rash per se. The biggest thing that you can do, biggest favor you can do yourself is just not itch it. So let's talk about food and water because this is another big one. Um, you know, it, it you you got to plan ahead, and that's a, just a theme in life. You got to you just have to plan for these things, and your food and water uh, needs are no different, right? Whether you're taking a day trip or uh, camping for the weekend, car camping, or taking a backpacking trip into the middle of nowhere. You really need to know what your meal uh, needs are and most importantly, your water needs. And so uh, just talking about food here real quick, just rattling off some random, random thoughts here. I mean, really, you want to wash your hands before handling, before and after handling food. Um, it's easiest to deal with your food pre if you prep it ahead of time. Uh, you want to prep that food if you do do uh, if you do food prep at your campsite or whatever you want to prep it on clean surfaces and you don't want to cross contaminate you know you don't want to chop up your veggies right in the juices of the raw chicken that you just put on the kebabs or whatever it is um, I've always said this is just something that I live by I don't take pork or fish camping I just don't those two types of meats typically can go bad relatively quickly. And I'm not saying it's going to happen all the time, but just as a general safety precaution, I don't take those two foods camping. Um, but if you did, if you were really hankering for those pork chops or maybe that fish filet, you just got to do it. Um, I would recommend you eating it the first night that you're there so that it doesn't stay in the cooler and run the risk of going bad on you. The importance of washing your dishes and utensils. It's very important. Obviously, we wouldn't be talking about it. It's a safety, um, it's a safety issue, right? And so the idea is that you want to heat up water to it being hot. And when you wash your dishes, you know, you want to think about you want to think in terms of having a, a sudsy bath pot, a rinse pot, and then if you've got the 
luck to have a third pot in the sanitization tabs you want to have a third one for sanitization so the first pot obviously you're going to scrub and the second one you're going to rinse and then you can put your stuff out to dry if you've got the luxury you know and you have the capabilities of making a sanitation pot you can do that otherwise you just want to make sure that you use hot water as hot as you can stand it and then um, use soap and then rinse well because nobody wants to get dysentery from uh, from uh, dirty dishes or soap residue on said dirty dishes. And that's that's no bueno at all. And look, don't worry about the soap. There's plenty of biodegradable soaps out there that um, allow you to wash your hands and wash your dishes without it being such a huge threat to the environment. So uh, the other thing that I want to talk about is leaving food out, leaving food out in your campsite. Don't do it. Now, if you're in a backpacking trip, okay, well, that's easy. You hoist it up in a tree. You get some twine, you get some rope, whatever, and you hoist that thing up in the tree. Plus the fact, if you're in bear country, which you could be in bear country any place, you go into the woods here in Georgia, just about it seems, uh, you want to hoist that up in a tree and get it out of the way. If you're car camping, as they call it, you know, like I was uh, up at a state park back in uh, June, I think this year, May or June, and I wheeled, we were doing walk-in camping, which meant I got to wheel or carry the cooler about 200 yards to and from the campsite either, each time. That was fun, but you don't want to lo- leave those coolers out in your campsite. Food attracts animals. Animals smelled better than you and me. And so, and that cooler is not going to keep anything out. It sure isn't going to keep a bear out. And it's not even going to keep a raccoon out. Uh, And if you've ever had any interactions with a raccoon, you'll understand why. They'll get into that cooler. So put your food up, either string it up in a tree or take the time to wheel that cooler back to your car and lock it up in the trunk or the back seat. Don't leave food out and around the campsite. You know, talking about not taking uh, what not to take for food. Uh, funny story. So we were up uh, back in the um, mid-90s, early 90s again, and uh, some high school. We took a couple of high school buddies with us camping. And one guy that we went with, good friend at the time, uh, he had never been camping before in his life. And we we're like, come on, man, it's going to be the four of us. This is going to be awesome. Let's go. But dude, here are some things not to pack food wise. And so, you know, no pork, no fish, no things that can expire, you know, that can spoil easily, you know, don't take shrimp, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. And this guy, uh, we called him Shed Spread. His last name was Shed, and we nicknamed him. I think I was the one that nicknamed him Shed Spread in high school. But anyway, Shed Spread brings a cooler. And first of all, we knew something was wrong because his cooler weighed an absolute freaking ton. And yeah, you know, you get some food in there and ice. Certainly, coolers are heavy. No, no. There was something way off with this cooler. Well, come to find out that Shed Spread had bought brought cans tins whatever it comes in of goose liver pate and then genuine artificial crab legs in his cooler well needless to say by day three the back of the truck where we were keeping our coolers and the moment that you flipped open the lid on your on his cooler needless to say it was not pleasant so the point is be smart with what you pack food wise 
uh let's talk about water um and it it's critical right uh, above all else you need water and even if you take a day hike you need to make sure you have enough water you know there's horror stories of people even walking trying to walk into the basin of the grand canyon and it's just a couple hour day hike right and them having to be rescued and drug out because they either didn't take any water because they thought it'd be a short easy trip or they didn't take enough and they ran out and it was a big big issue for them right so Plan your trip accordingly. Plan to have for any half-day hike I would have, and this is just me, right? I'm spitballing here. I haven't looked this up officially, but, you know, you better plan to have a minimum of a quart of water in a backpack along with your first aid and trauma kit um, if you plan on taking a day hike. And, you know, the last day hike I went on was wound up being about four hours by the time we did everything. And, you know, a court wasn't enough, right? I really needed two. So uh, water is your friend, and I can't emphasize that enough. Well, when you're backpacking, you know, you're not going to be able to haul five gallons of water in your backpack, right? So you got to be a little smarter about it. And there's ways to clean up water, you know, uh, you can use bleach, uh, but that's kind of a rough way of doing it. Uh, the more common ways you get some of those iodine pills, things like that. But uh, the, the two best ways I can recommend for getting clean water when you don't have the ability to carry a lot with you is a get a water filtration system and get a good one. Um, plan to be pumping uh, some amount of water out of whatever water source you can find. Um, on an emergency small scale basis, you can even find these life straws that you can supposedly stick right down into nasty ass water and drink from it. Hence life straw. Um, I've got, um, I forget the brand of it, but I actually have a water filtration system. And the worst part about it is it just takes forever to draw up any amount of water into whatever container I'm drawing it up into because the filter, uh, material um, is so many layers and so thick to be able to filter out down to XYZ microns and take out this funk and that that germ and this disease. So, you know, the water filtration is is some work, some elbow grease, but it's really the most effective because now you're packing whatever minimum amount of water that you need to get through the hike to get you to your campsite. And then, you know, you'll be able to do the water filtration thing. Now, with that being said, generally you want to try to camp by a water source, right? You need to be smart and cognizant of where a water source is near you. So you have something to filter. So that's part of that planning part too. Uh, and then of course the last, uh, or the main way that you uh, can get water, uh, prep to drink is to boil it. And I think it's like you got to boil it for 20 minutes. And if you keep adding more water in there, it, you know, it's like a, almost a reset. And then all you got to do is w worry about filtering it, right? And there's any number of ways of doing that if it's really dirty water in addition to killing all the funk, because that's what you're doing when you're boiling it. You're not removing dirt out of the water, obviously. You're killing the potential funk that's in the water. So I recommend either boiling or getting a, a filter. And like I said, there are the pills. And then there's always the bleach, but I'd say that's more in a, you got caught with your pants down emergency situation and you got to get something by, uh, is the only time I would personally do the bleach. So food and water, that's where it's at. Uh, another thing, uh, that 
you want to be aware of is, you know, if you have something like a grease pit, you just want to not dig it right next to your tent and food stuffs. Uh, you want to have it, you know, a good 30, 40 feet away from your camping area. And this is the place where you dump that dirty soap water again, biodegradable soap. Uh, you dump that, you take the grease from the morning bacon, you know, or whatever it is. And that's where you dump that because, you know, if even if you're car camping, there's not necessarily a good way to get rid of grease right if you've cooked for breakfast that morning just as one example you got to have a place to put that grease so uh, dig yourself a pit just dig it a good 30 40 feet away from the campsite and then before you leave uh, cover it up again uh, because again that's part of that uh, clean it up uh, before you go so again, I, I told you we'd be talking about things completely out of order here. Um, and so I'm coming to one of the more important pieces that I wanted to talk to you about. And that's people and where they have a place in your plan or where they don't have a place in your plan. You know, if you're planning a backpacking trip, a hiking trip, a camping trip, ideally you're going with someone. But I get it. We all, myself included, I've been camping by myself before friend of mine um, um, they've taken a number of hiking uh, camping trips serious hiking camping trips by themselves and I get it but people still have a place people still have a place in your planning and this is especially true if you're not doing something like a car camping state park trip like if you're planning on going out for a hike you need to do planning. You need to know where you're going. You need to have a map of that area. Hopefully, you got some map compass orientation skill, orienteering skills about yourself just in case. You're going to have your phone. If you got really fancy pants, hopefully, you got a GPS. I can't tell you how many stories there are of people going into the woods, maybe even just for a day hike or maybe extended trips, and they got off trail again reason not to get off trail but they got off trail and got lost and couldn't get found couldn't be found so knowing where you're going knowing what your routes are having some sense of what's in the area where the water sources are what the animals are known for being in that area and getting all that done ahead of time um, and part of that is sharing those plans with family and friends so that someone besides you knows where you are and knows what you're doing. And most importantly, if something goes wrong or you don't show up when you're supposed to, they know roughly where you should be. I mean, if you're on XYZ course, they're going to know that some you're likely somewhere on that XYZ course or path, right? You're not five miles off course because you went off, off, off the trail. Um, share those plans and share your timelines. Like you may not have to say, well, I'm going to be at point A at this time, this day and point B this time that day. And I'll call and check in with you. You don't have to do that, but your people should know the day and time that you're going in. They should know where you're at and they should know when you're planning or expecting to be out the other side or coming home again. And you should share that information. And, uh, like I said, that's got to do with sharing your route and sharing your timeline and your schedules. And then, you know, having an emergency contact, like let's say something happens to you and, you know, first responders get to you. Uh, do you have emergency contact information? Uh, so uh, people are, are important um, in your planning. And like I said, ideally, you're taking a trip with someone, right? The buddy system is best, in my opinion. 
So the other thing that I want to talk about relative to people is not just their importance in your planning, but also want to talk about what happens when you meet people on your trip, right? I believe that most people are good and not ill-intended. But when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're hiking the Appalachian, let's say, or you're hiking the backwoods of Maine somewhere, wherever it is, or even you know North Georgia where you're not entirely sure where you're at, you always want to exercise caution when you come up across this, come across anyone on the trail, or especially when you're set up for camping and you're you're by yourself. Especially, you want to exercise the same caution that you do any other time, and uh, you want to set ba- you want to have boundaries set for yourself ahead of time, and then be willing uh, and firm about um, making sure they understand your boundaries. Uh, you want to be situationally aware so someone just doesn't sneak up on you. Now, you're going to be all relaxed in the woods, and I get that. So situational awareness, you don't really think about when you're camping and hiking, but it actually couldn't be further from the truth. And so on a sidebar note, situationally aware still has its place even when you're out in Mother Nature. Uh, you need to be paying attention to what the weather's doing. That's situationally aware. You need to be on the lookout for any critters. You need to be on the lookout for that that uh, 10 point buck that's just right up the ridge there and it's rut season you need to be aware of that black bear that's meandering up to your picnic table because he thinks you've got goodies uh, or the skunk that walks underneath your picnic table where you're pay- playing go fish um, funny funny story so campsite up in the great smoky mountains my family and i spent a tremendous amount of time up there and my cousins and I and the family would stay up late playing go fish at the concrete. Well, I don't remember if they were, no, they weren't concrete picnic tables or wooden. Anyway, I digress. Um, we'd be sitting there at the picnic tables playing go fish and we'd have skunks walk between our legs, between our feet underneath the picnic table while we were playing go fish. Well, if you just weren't aware of the fuzzy critter walking around in between your feet, like a cat, you would never know that they were there because they're not there to do your harm. They're not running up to you to bite you or anything like that. You just have to be aware of them and you have to be aware of them enough to know, hey, don't make any sudden moves or noise because I don't want to get sprayed by a skunk. But I can't tell you, I'd say on two or three different separate occasions, I had skunks walking uh, between my feet while I was playing cards at the table. But situational awareness still has a role in the woods. That's my point. And so, you know, you're going to come across people on occasion, even when you're on that four-day hiking trek where you think you're going to God's country or whatever, and no one else will be around. Yeah, inevitably someone will come mucking around. So you want to try not to be startled by that, right? Because if you've been paying attention, you've kind of heard them in the area, or you see their bright jacket or whatever it is, and notice um and last but not least and i think this is well i know it's critically important uh men and women are like and especially when you're alone camping or hiking listen to your gut listen to that intuition look if someone's getting too fresh on the trail don't be afraid to be rude set those boundaries um listen to your gut so have situational awareness be be cautious, but you can be friendly um, and be prepared to sit, lay out those boundaries. And then, you know, after that, um, you know, hopefully you've got some skills to where if something did happen, 
you would at least have a better chance of uh, fighting off someone if they had ill intent. Again, this is worst case scenario, right? But it's about having a plan, thinking through scenarios ahead of time. So at least to have some sort of a plan in your head, the person that's thought through scenarios and what they would do in this situation or that situation or that scenario is always going to be better prepared than the person that hasn't given it the thir- first thought. But um, yeah, uh, I would say um, I'd say have a plan ahead of time and then communicate that plan um, before you go. And then again, if you have the money and the luxury, you know, a GPS is nice. And then if you're in extreme situations like in the Rockies in the middle of nowhere or you're skiing or hiking in avalanche country, you know, having something like a beacon or a tracker is also something that you could do in the most extreme of situations. But um, for the average Joe Schmo, just having a plan ahead of time and communicating it, and then ideally being with a buddy is best you can do. And then exercise caution, utilize situational awareness and listen to your gut when it comes to running into people on the trail. Uh, Some other things that you want to do in your planning is, um, you know, hopefully you've got a map of the area. And if you don't, you at least are somewhat familiar with where you're at. And you want to be paying attention to the signs along the trails. Uh, Sometimes there'll be signs with carved out uh, trail names and mileage on them. Uh, arrows pointing different directions. You want to be cognizant of those. You want to be looking for those. They're typically at intersections along the trail to kind of give you a sense of you're at this point here, right? Um, And then the other thing, which can be difficult depending on how good the service has done them, is that you'll look for markers on the trees, you know, for this color trail, that color trail. And it'll little, literally be either tags nailed up on the tree or um, or it'll be spray paint, right? A lot of times you'll see spray paint marking different trails. You know, this is the orange diamond trail. That's the blue, di- blue rectangle trail. Whatever it is, kind of get your bearings. You want to be keeping an eye out for that because you get to an intersection. Which way do you go? Now, Hopefully, if you're walking and hiking by yourself, you've got some sense of uh, direction. But if not, and in either case, uh, you definitely want to be looking for those signs and you want to be looking for those markers on the trees or posts along the way. And, and look, it doesn't hurt to know how to use a compass with a map, right? And that's a skill. I, I've done it in my past. It's been a long time. I actually need to go through and re- refresh my stuff. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the many skills that can be found in the Boy Scout handbook, and I still have mine, uh, again, I mentioned earlier, from 1981 and beyond, there's orientation skills in there, how to use a compass with map. And so, uh, yeah, a little extra work. Uh, it's not as hard as you might think it is, and it's worth having the time, especially if you're going into uncharted territory or territories you're just not that familiar with yourself. And look, why why do you want to be responsible for yourself? Why do you want to go through all this care and planning and, and, and plan communication? It's because when they have to come find you, when your dumbass got lost, it cost a lot of money and a lot of manpower to search you out. A story I heard about recently, someone walked off the trail up in the Smoky Mountains and they put 300 people into the woods to try and find this person. And I think they did, if I remember the story, but that's not the point of this. The point is 
it takes a lot of time and money and manpower to find your dumbass when you do less than intelligence things. So that's why this stuff becomes important. The last thing that I want to, the last topic that I want to talk to you about is fire and having those wonderful campfires, which we all know and love. At least I do. I'm, I, I've loved fire ever since I was a kid, you know, and I, I have to say with personal experience and, you know, joking around other, every other guy's experience, I think there's a little bit of pyro in every young boy, uh, in every guy, um, not malicious or anything like that, but fire is a wonderful thing. Fire is mesmerizing and it's not only a source of warmth, but gives us the ability to cook and, like I said, there's something mesmerizing. Like one of the best things about car camping or any kind of camping is when it's at night and there's a little nip in the air and you're gathered around the fire and you're building up a nice big warm fire and just staring into the flames and watching the flames. I could do that. I mean, that's like watching an aquarium of fish. Uh, those are That's one of those things that I could just watch endlessly. But anyway, let's talk about fire safety for a moment and some things that you need to take into consideration. Uh, and I've built all kinds of fires, but here we go. Uh, just a list of some things. So when you're, you know, if you're car camping in an estate park or a national park, they generally have fire rings, right? They got the nice big round iron rings that make it idiot proof. And then a lot of them have stacked rocks around that to kind of hide the fact that there's a ring there with a swivel swing around grill or whatever. Okay. That's fine. Kind of cheating, but makes it easy and cheap, uh, for people to deal with when they're car camping right and then easy for the park service to take care of and and most importantly contain that fire that's that's really the fire ring allows them to uh, contain the fire uh, have the fireplace and maybe an otherwise smaller area than they might if they were allowing people to build from scratch and then because they have a designated fire pit with that fire ring uh, it keeps people from building fires any which place all over the place in the campsite, right? So there's a lot of advantages to that. But let's say you're out camping, roughing it, and you're not in a state park and you're not car camping. You need to build a fire. Uh, the first thing is you want to clear out about a 10-foot clearance radius circle around your fire area. And this is just to remove things that would otherwise catch on fire, right? Uh, the other place where widow makers uh, might come into play, but it really doesn't matter if the branches, limbs are dead or alive, is you don't want to build a fire where you got a bunch of low hanging branches, right? Because those hot ambers can go up there and spark fires, right? And we know with the forest fires, uh, the wildfires out west, right? It doesn't take much to spark, you know, a careless cigarette being thrown out on the side of the road. Uh, somebody playing with matches in the edge of the grass, someone leaving a fire that hasn't been put out properly. You know, it doesn't take a lot to have a catastrophe. So we want to make sure there's not things around on the ground that can ignite and burn and spread. There's not anything over the top of the head of us that can burn and spread. And by that standard, I don't really want to build a fire on top of a bunch of roots because especially if the roots belong to a dead or dying tree, those roots can be dry and actually can burn and here's the thing about roots is that they can burn underground and that fire can pop up some distance away from where the source of the fire was is because the fire traveled underground 
You may not know that, but it's possible. So avoid overhanging branches, low hanging, or really a lot of any branches overhead. Don't build on top of roots and then clear you out about a 10 foot radius around it. Uh, Keep fuels away from the fire. This seems to be a no brainer, but uh, don't store your don't don't put your uh, kerosene or your propane tanks right next to where you're going to be building a fire, keeping a fire. If you're using lighter fluid, don't don't prop it up on the stone right next to your fireplace. Right. Keep fuels out of the area. Uh, Honestly, you'd be better off keeping them outside that 10 foot area altogether. Uh, just to be extra safe um you're you're gonna want you're gonna want to uh since you don't have the convenience of an iron fire ring you're gonna want to use rocks to build a uh a barrier for your fire and the only thing i can tell you about rocks is don't get rocks out of the rivers lakes or rocks that are near rivers or lakes uh, rocks that are near liver, rivers or lakes are like giant sponges yes rocks are porous and they act like very hard sponges but the fact of the matter is is that they can hold a lot of water and what happens to a rock that's got a lot of water in it if it's used as a fire pit rock that rocks is going to heat up and in some cases it's going to heat up super hot super hot and when that water heats up faster than what it can be released from that rock guess what that rock's going to explode sometimes those explosions just look like splits the rock splitting Maybe there's a couple little slivers or chips to fall off. Other times, those rocks have been known to literally explode like a time bomb in the fire. So get rocks that are not near water sources, especially or out of the out of the streams and rivers, which is a a, a tendency to have. Um, um, if there's no other rocks around, but there's some other things that you can do uh, to to make a makeshift ring. You can make in-ground fires. You can dig rings around your fire area. Um, but whatever you want to do, you want to avoid rocks that have been in or, or near water. And the last thing that I'll touch on relative to fire is when it comes to putting them out. Now, look, if you're camping in a car camping scenario and you're staying there all weekend, do you literally have to douse your fire pit out with water completely every single time the fire is done for the night or you get through cooking breakfast the next morning? No. But what you do want to do is you want to ensure that your fire is burned down enough that there's no chance of it getting out and spreading, right? And this is all dependent on winds and whatever else. Like it might, the winds might be kicking so high uh, before or after a storm or whatever that it doesn't make good sense to make fire, right? A, because you're not going to get it lit anyway. And B, you don't want any ambers blowing off and starting a fire that you don't know about. Um, But when it comes to leaving, Uh, When it comes to leaving to go home, when it comes to packing up and moving on to your next campsite on your backpacking journey, whatever it is, you want to make sure that fire's out. You don't want to just let the wood burn all the way down. You want to take the extra steps to get water and put that fire completely out and make sure it's cool. And the way you do that is getting water, which is another reason why it's important to be by a water source, getting water and The way I learned to do it, again, in the Boy Scouts, and this was just mostly to keep the soot and ashes and smoke and steam from blowing up in your face, is you get your pot, your bucket of water or whatever, and you 
you start splashing the water onto the fire instead of pouring it all on there in one fell swoop, you know. But however, you want to make sure that fire is completely out. And so you do that with adding water and getting a stick and stirring it up. And that way you're sure to uncover any of those hot coals that are down in there to copy the words of an infamous bear spokesman bear only you can prevent forest fires and making sure those fires are out completely before you leave the scene is aside from not playing with fire when you're in the woods uh, making sure fires are put out all the way and properly is the best way to help ensure less chance of a forest fire caused by anything you've done so that wraps up our chat about safety while hiking and camping. I hope you've learned something here today. I'm going to leave you with this and it really has nothing to do with safety, but just my little bit of political, uh, whatever you want to call it, my philosophy uh, when it comes to camping and whatnot is, you know, there's a saying in the community, leave no trace. And that means just that. Um, I always, you know, and another one is uh, pack out everything you've packed in. And I even take that when I've been backpacking and height and camping out in the middle of nowhere. I actually will pick up trash that I know is not mine, right? Trash that was there before I got there, trash that I find throughout the period that I'm at the campsite, whatever. I gather it all up because it's important that we take care of nature and we take care of those animals and we don't leave our filth out there for others to have to deal with and for nature to have to deal with. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Hope you guys can take away a few nuggets of information. And look, if you like this or other podcasts that we've done, tell your friends and family. We'd greatly appreciate it. And if you have an opportunity to rate us, we'd love to have a five-star review from you as well. So take care, and we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks so much.